Hi everyone, my name is Haley. And this is Laura. And welcome to The Body Pod. All right, welcome everyone. Today we are so excited. Have you ever been more excited, Laura? No, I feel like we have the biggest celebrity on. <laughs> I know, and we've had some pretty amazing top-notch guests. So we're so excited today. We are interviewing Dr. Jerry Chittister, a.k.a. Dr. Chitty. You can find him on the gram that way or on TikTok, right? Yeah. It's Dr. Chitty. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we are thrilled to have him here. Uh, I'm going to let you, Dr. Chitty, I'm going to let you give a quick intro because I love your story of where you started in plastic surgery or in surgery and then kind of where you went. So can you explain that? Yeah. Um, just going a little bit of background. I, I grew up overseas in Saudi Arabia and then moved back to Utah where my dad's from um, back like when I was in high school. My wife and I met in high school, so we're technically high school sweethearts. Um, I then um, I was going to the University of Utah for my undergrad. I went and served a two-year mission for my church in Thailand. So my mom's from Thailand, and that's where I served my mission. So when I got home in 2003, Mindy and I got married that year. We, we started dating again and it worked out. So we got married. Um, and then I did my undergrad and med school at the University of Utah. So we were up there for like eight years straight. So we lived here in Salt Lake. And then we had our, our first two children while we were in medical school towards the end. And then we moved to Southern California. So I went and trained in plastic surgery at Loma Linda University Medical Center. So that's in, you know, just east of LA, beautiful place. Mm -hmm. So we were there for six years. And then at that time, you know, in plastic surgery training, we train head to toe, everything, you know, face, nose, but we do hand surgery too. And I really had a huge interest in hand. And I actually, I kind of pictured myself being working at a big university hospital, doing these just crazy hand surgery cases, doing hand transplants, whatever. And so I did a fellowship. So I did an extra year of specialty hand training at USC in Los Angeles. So we moved to LA. We were in South Pasadena for a year. And um, during that time, we had our third child, but he's, he's foster adopted. So we kind of went through the foster system. And that's how McKay became part of our family. And then I finished my training, but during that time, I kind of realized, I'm like, I don't think I want to work in a university. I didn't love the politics of it. I just, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't like, it wasn't my personality, you know? And so I started looking for a job back in Utah because my mom called me and was like, hey, you need to try to come back here, you know? So Asian culture is very much like protective of your son and, you know, got to be close yeah. to your family. So I said, fine, I'll do my due diligence. And so we looked into a couple of practices that were already here. I just didn't see myself doing my own thing. I, you know, I'm like, I'm a surgeon. I'm not a business person. The thought of running a practice was scary to me. So um, I'm like, I know how to do surgery. I just don't know how to run a business. So I did end up joining a practice here uh, up in Salt Lake. And I was there for a little over a year. I got my board certification and I was doing a lot of hand surgery and a lot of aesthetic surgery. It was kind of like a 50-50. But my aesthetic surgery, so like the mommy makeovers, the breast surgery, that started to really pick up. And so I kind of came to the point where I was like, man, hand, I love hand surgery, but I was in, I was up all night in the emergency room and in the OR, you know, doing these trauma cases for, you know, some of the big hospitals here. And I just was so tired. And I'm like, I have the our kids, and I was looking at my life and my my time I had, and I just realized like it wasn't worth it to me to to lose all that time with you know, the people I love the most. So I really yeah. dedicated my practice kind of shifted completely to the aesthetic side and that continued to grow. And then, yeah, we started our own practice in January of 2020 in Draper and it's just um, exploded ever since. So here we are starting our, I guess we're into our fourth year and uh, we have our building going up in Draper. I have two uh, partners now, Dr. Pfeiffer, Dr. Garlic. Uh, we have about 40 people on our team. So it's just been a fun fun few years. Scary, but fun. Yeah. You found your passion. I love that. I actually graduated. I'm a Ute. I graduated yes. from the University of Utah and my husband's father did his, uh, went to medical school there as well. Oh, so, cool. I mean, he's retired now and you know, whatever, but <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're Utes, which is always fun. Cause everyone's <laughs> like BYU and yeah. we were Utes. So yeah, my wife's BYU. We have a house divided. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, those games well, she, probably get spicy. 
<laughs> yeah, she did say that, you know, if the University of Utah forgives all my student loans, she'll become a fan. And that's never going to happen. So <laughs> well, I appreciate that, though. I appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that. So I happened upon you. I think I don't even know if it was just like organically from your reels and, and the dancing with the staff. And I was like, this guy's hilarious and so fun. He would be like the best boss. So that was super fun. And then just like, because I'm originally from Utah as well, but I've lived in Boulder for 20 something years, minus three years in New York. But mm-hmm everyone was like, Oh, Dr. Chitty's the best. And then I actually just had an implant exchange seven weeks ago. And I was so mad because when I was, I loved my doctor, but when I was looking, I was like, you can't even get into the sky <laughs> for like nine months or a year or something. So like, what's your wait list? Well, that's right one now? Of, that was one of the main questions, which then I thought, wait, is there a wait list to be waitlisted? Because someone, people would ask, <laughs> how long does it take to get into you? And then someone yeah. said, when is the wait list going to open up? So what is the, <laughs> you're in high demand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wish, you know, like I said, I operate as much as I can. And, but it's like, again, it's a life's a balance. I'm trying to juggle, you know, running a, a practice that's growing appropriately. I want to make sure I see my patients that I've already operated on. I want to always dedicate time to my current patients. So I just don't want to be that surgeon who, you know, operates 28 days a month and has one clinic day. And I know people that do that. And yeah. so, you know, I've always thought of that, like it's tempting, right. To not see your patients and just to do surgery, but I feel like that's not the right thing. And I think part of the reason why we are where we're at today with the waitlist and things is because we try to offer that level of care that not that not other people don't offer, but that like we're trying to maintain, so we, you know, uh-huh. do that and we're definitely not perfect, but, um, yeah, the wait list, you know, and again, in 2020, when I opened my practice, um, I wasn't, I mean, I was starting to get busy cause I've been doing social media for about since 2018 and, and it was still small, but 2019 is when I found out about TikTok. And for me, I, I grew up break dancing and I love dancing, you know, that's like my creative outlet. Do you have a break dancer name? Oh yeah, it was uh, J Rock. It was J Rock. Yes, this is amazing. I love it. <laughs> it was J Rock. Um, yeah, I don't go by that now, but <laughs> yeah. So I I found TikTok, and because I would do with my staff at my other place, I would do dance battles on Friday. We would like split the staff, and we would do these like dance battles. But you know, to put that on Instagram was just really clunky. Like mm-hmm. to try to, and you couldn't even put audio really on back then. So I had to like edit it and it was just so annoying. And so when I found TikTok, I was like, oh my gosh, I can take a music file and do a dance and I can just post it. Like I loved it. So, and yeah. again, for me, that's like how I, I don't, I'm not a sculptor. I don't draw comics. I, you know, I like to do art, but that's not my outlet. Like I don't play video games anymore. I used to love video games, but I don't. So like dancing has always been my, my thing. And so when I found TikTok, I just really latched on. And that's where I started to grow. People are like, oh, you're like the dancing surgeon or whatever. And, and I thought it was fun. But, you know, between that and then just posting surgical content, that's where I think it really blew up as people's like, oh, like he's doing some things that not other people are doing. I started doing the internal bra, which in Utah at the time, no one even knew what that was. But yeah, so I started doing that. And that's where a lot of this happened. I had a lot of fit, active patients who had had issues with implants before and, you know, the internal bra. And I think it's not magical, but it definitely helps in a lot of ways. And so that's really started to grow. And then in terms of the mommy makeover, I call it mommy takeover, you know, helping women. There's a lot of women in Utah that, you know, are, have a lot of kids and they want to get their bodies mm-hmm. back. And so I kind of focus my practice on those two, you know, these complex breast cases and then women with mom makeovers. And so there's definitely a lot of patients word gets around. And yeah, before you know it, I close my books. Cause I just, I just stopped taking patients. It got to like two years out and I'm like, you know, people get mad. They like message me. So like, you know, why are you, why are you so booked out? I'm like, I don't know. I'm sorry. You know? And so I just closed it. I was like, let's just not take anyone. Like I'm done. Right. And so we did that for about a year and a half. I didn't take any new patients on a wait list. I hired my two associates to try and get them to, you know, see some of my patients. I trust their work. Uh, it just didn't help. And so last July I said, okay, let's open it up again. I think we can do it. And I think in that 24 hours, there was like over a thousand women that called and booked a consult. So now like it crashed. Um, so weave is the communication like software we use, you know, it's great for communicating patients, but it crashed weave. Like they had to like the server stopped working. So, um, 
So then I was like, well, I guess, you know, my wait list isn't technically closed, but yeah, with a thousand extra patients on top of the thousand already, I mean, it's like kind of ridiculous. So that's why I tell patients, I'm like, look, there's a kind of a wait list for a wait list now. Cause I just, I don't know, you know, and, and I, and again, I try to give quality care. I don't, it's not about quantity or quality for me. It's definitely about the quality, mm-hmm. but you know, it's like if, I mean, I don't have like a nice watch, but if you had a really nice watch, they only make so many a year and they keep the quality high. But, you know, like you have to wait a little bit. So that's absolutely true. And you guys, before we started, I told him how much I appreciated that he is giving us his this time of his. But I said, you are the most efficient person I've ever met. He said, like, just his timing, everything about him. And he said, it's because whatever I'm doing, I give 100% to. And whenever I'm like whether it's us, whether it's his patient, whether he's doing surgery, and I'm sure it's the same with his family. And I I mean, I don't want a surgeon who it's like a mill. I'm just like a number. I'm a body. I want someone who, when I am there for a pre-op, my operation, my post-op, I want him or her, and I want to be their number one. And when you said that, I was like, this is why he has a wait list on a wait list because I'm sure everyone feels that. Yeah. I mean, that's my goal. Um, I think as, as a culture, as a business too, that's what we've tried to foster is that, you know, where, you know, you get our hundred percent attention when, you know, when you're here and, and again, you know, it's, it's like, if you go to like, I don't know, a nice hotel or a restaurant, like you feel special, like you, you feel like, Oh wow. Like they notice me and they take care of me. Right. Especially if people are coming in doing elective surgery and paying, sometimes lots of money for this. Like you want to feel like that's that value is there and that's worth it. And so, yeah, I I feel like if I'm doing something, you got to put hundred percent, even surgery, like I, that is the, my most important thing, you know? And, and I treat every patient, like if it was my wife on the table, not that I need multiple wives, but that, you know, the level of care and detail I would give is if it was my wife, right? I care. Obviously I want her to to have the best outcome and be the safest. So that's how I think of every patient, oh, I love that. you know, yeah. whether it's a woman or a man. And so, um, yeah, surgery. And again, a lot of my time during the week is spent in surgery and I love, that's like my, my place, my Zen place is really doing mm-hmm. surgery. Um, but it's, it's fun for me and our team to really just see the transformations that occur with patients and, you know, and, and every surgeon's different, you know, some surgeons do this as a job, they clock in, clock out. Right. Um, or it is a number to them and that's up to them. If they do it for the financial reasons, that's fine. But I, I tell, you know, when I hired our two, my two partners, when they came on, I said, look, I'm like, if you make money, the reason why you're doing this, like you will end up making decisions that are not the best decisions for your patients. Right. And, and that, that I think over time, if you continually do that, you will end up doing not the right thing for your patients. But I said, if you're patient and their outcome is your number one, then the money will come, right? Like the, you will be mm-hmm. fine. Like, yeah, like busy or not, but you will be fine and taken care of, you know, because people mm-hmm. will see that. And so that's always been my philosophy um, with patients. Uh, and I think that's, and my partners are the same way. They believe that too. So. Well, it's obviously created such an incredible culture and beautiful space to work and for people to feel safe to have these body transformations. Let's dive into the questions. And one of the questions, which is, this is a good um, segue is because you were talking about focusing on breasts and then the mommy takeover, which I love it. I love that. Um, Me too. Term you coined um, is do you, is those are your two main things. Do you do anything with the face or anything else at all? Or Yeah, I so I'm a, a board certified plastic surgeon by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. Um, you know, my training encompassed, like I said, everything from literally the top of your head, your scalp, all the way to your your toes. I mean, I know you um, and so, do it all. I just wondered if yeah, there I've trained in that and um I do do I've done I do rhinoplasties, facelifts, neck lifts, all that stuff, blepharoplasties. But for me, like I focused my practice over the last couple of years, I kind of found what I'm passionate about. And, you know, there's different mentalities. Some surgeons are like, look, I just want to always do everything, right? For me, I've kind of changed that mentality. I started out that way, but I've looked and I said, look, if I can do two mommy takeovers in a day, let's say, versus, you know, one rhinoplasty and one facelift, I feel like as if I do that consistently, 
you know, anything we do 10,000 times, 10,000 hours, we get better at it. Never going to achieve perfection, but I feel like, you know, we have such a flow as a team in the OR with doing these surgeries, whether it's breast or it's body and stuff Mm -hmm. that I just kind of got bored with the face stuff. And I think it's great. Don't get me wrong. I love the anatomy of the face and the nose and it's fun. It's challenging. But I really feel like, you know, we can be very efficient. Again, you talk about efficiency, uh-huh. like every movement we make in the OR with these cases is almost like clockwork and everybody's different. So we adjust, but like, we don't even have to talk a lot of times, you know, we, we talk about other things because we just know what we're all doing. And so it's kind of fun. It's almost like this like symphony that happens in surgery. Um, and I feel like the only really way to get to that point is to operate often and to do similar things frequently right and uh-huh. so i feel like if i spread myself out too thin because even like your know, mommy takeover it's six seven different surgeries all the time like you oh. know you know surgeons there are surgeons alone that just do breast surgery because it that itself is a lot um so i feel like you know but you know to me it's it's kind of the balance of the the chest and the torso and all that so in the abdomen so i feel like that all goes together but that's that would say that's kind of why I focus and do I do it? Yeah, but do I love doing rhinoplasties? No. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm yeah. just gonna do what I love now. Um. Well, do you would you say that the what what is included in the mommy takeover? First of all. Yeah, you know, really, it's it's any procedure or anything that will help restore function or form or aesthetics or all of the above to any part of the body that we kind of feel has been affected by pregnancy. And there are women, obviously, who haven't even had pregnancy. So it's hard because that term, it's just not all-encompassing. I wish I could find a different term for women who have gone through weight changes or fluctuations that maybe haven't had kids. They still have a lot of the, the same things because hormonally, it's similar to pregnancy in a lot of ways. But you know, if you think about, for example, the, the most one you think about are the breasts and the tummy, you know, breasts, when you engorge your breasts, when you're breastfeeding or not, you know, they deflate, you lose volume, things sag, skin changes. And so that's what we're trying to restore that. So a lot of times the breast is, is involved. And then the tummy, you know, natural expansion of your rectus muscles, they separate, you get that diastasis. Um, you you just can't repair that on your own. I mean, a lot of women, there are th- things you can do to strengthen your core and maybe reduce it a little bit, but in, in the end, that that separation, that gap is permanent. And so yeah. those are things that women can't correct. You know, hormones change where women store fat in their body. So many women I see after pregnancy, they have like fat pockets. They're like, yeah, I have this fat above my tailbone I never had, you know, and your body just latches onto that and it becomes mm-hmm. almost impossible to get rid of. And then even things like labiaplasty. So, you know, if you have vaginal deliveries or even hormones, it changes the way your labia the length is. And so it can get really elongated and women have a hard time with intercourse or even like riding a bike, it's chafing, you know, between their legs. Um, so those are all kind of the main components, but you know, even things like upper eyelids and stuff, you know, like your face gets puffy and swollen, that skin gets stretched out and you know, you might need a blepharoplasty. So there's just a lot of components. So that's why I think as plastic surgeons, we kind of call it the mommy makeover just to encompass it all. I mean, for me, I call it the takeover just because I love the idea of like a woman taking their body back. I feel like it's more, them doing it than like me doing a makeover on them it's more you know it's more personal more power empowering in my opinion um because you know i see see women all the time they're doing their best you know and and it's hard for me when you know someone's like oh i just exercise that skin off or just exercise you know get get rid of that that loose skin or that stubborn fat in your tummy exercise no i mean exercise is very important um but there's only so much you can do on your own, you know, and I, and I feel like it's very validating for a lot of women when they come in, they're like, Oh, I didn't realize my muscles were separated four inches, you know, like I can't yeah. sit up out of bed or I pee myself every time I laugh, you know, and these are things that you just can't correct on your own. And so it's, it's cool to see that change in women after surgery for sure. Okay. This is a big question because I, as I said, I had a implant exchange. Mm-hmm. From 27 years. I had these implants for 27 years. Oh, they served you well. They, I mean, they did their, yeah, they do, they did their time, but I had like the teardrop, which was like mm-hmm. in for a hot minute and they, they were sailing because silicone at the time was off the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do they have a shelf life? Do the implants now have a shelf life? Love it. Yeah. You know, if you look back at probably your surgeon 27 years ago, they would have told you you could keep that in forever. You know, I think if you look at now the the implants today, we're at like a fifth generation implant, meaning they've gone through one, two, three, four or five iterations. It's changed. So what's inside even silicone implants is very different today than it was even 10 years ago in, in terms of how they 
you know, make them cohesive. Oh. So all the implants today are the, what we call gummy. And the reason they call it gummy is because the silicone is cross-linked, so it holds its shape very nicely. And the shells are much more durable. The amount of testing the FDA makes them go through, you know, these companies, I've been to their factories before just to see it. And it's cool firsthand to see how durable they are. So the durability of these implants today compared to even 27 years ago is much higher. But with that being said, even though you could probably keep them in for another 27, 30 years, the FDA came out with a black box warning say, look, like, you know, these implants, they're a medical device in the end. And there's no medical device on the market, whether it's a pacemaker and a joint knee joint replacement, whatever, that's a permanent device in your body. So breast implants are the same way. And so I advise my patients and the FDA recommends the same thing is that, you know, these are not permanent. And so they don't tell you how long, but I tell patients typically on average 10 to 15 years. So if you look back at some of the studies, the what we call spontaneous rupture rates where the shell cracks, it gets higher every year after 10 years. And so there's no like hard, fast line. Again, that's data from the older implants. So they're probably more durable now, but I do say 10 to 15 years. But here's the thing. Uh, FDA recommends after five or six years, you check your implants with an imaging study. So whether that's a high resolution ultrasound or an MRI, we can look at the implants and just survey them, say, look, are they intact? If they look good, keep them. And then every few years after that, they recommend you just image them. And nowadays with ultrasound, it's so inexpensive and cheap you know, in that sense, like we have them in our office, so we can just check for you. So you really, you know, you can know right away if you need to change your implant. And it's not an emergency. These implants are, again, gummy cohesive. They're not like leaking through your body, like the, the old ones potentially could. Um, so they're definitely in that level of safety, much, much better in my opinion. But I, I do tell patients 10 to 15 on average is probably ideal. This is amazing. I, no one is going in for an ultrasound. So we need to get the word out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Have you ever heard of that, Laura? No, not that you could just go in for an ultras ultrasound and mm -hmm. check them out. Um, oh. which is actually this is helpful and anything to make it easier for the consumer, I feel like is great. Um, okay, mm -hmm. while we're talking about breasts, I want to know the skinny on the internal bra, especially yes. because I've had long-term, this is totally personal, but long-term like issues with my breast pockets um and the implant staying in place and looking the way I've wanted them to look so first tell us what the internal bra is and is that something because I'm assuming I'm not the only one um is that something that helps the breast stay in place the implant stay in place yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's funny. I actually got uh, along these lines, um, you know, Dr. Debro on Botched, he he made a comment on his show. He said he was talking to these two women who had very large implants. And he said, you know, I, I bet if I surveyed 100 plastic surgeons that board certified like myself, 75% of them would tell you that the internal bra is is a moneymaker only. It doesn't work. And that caused an uproar because one, like I, I feel like he's kind of removed from plastic surgery. He's obviously more entertainment at this point. But yeah. in the reality, if you look at a lot of the studies that have been published, and the, I look at my own patients. So I've done about 1,500 breasts with the internal bra. So 750 patients over the last five years. I do. I think I have the biggest case series in, in the world for that number of cases with one surgeon. So I'm actually I'm trying to publish my stuff right now in a research article. So I do have experience to talk about this. So I don't agree with Dr. Debro. I actually have seen amazing results with the internal bra. So what is it? The internal bra, it's a material. It's like suture material that we already use. So suture has been around for a long time. There's both permanent suture and then there's like dissolving non-permanent suture. The non-permanent suture is made of different biopolymers and things that the body can just break down over time. So the internal bra is that material. It is what we call bioabsorbable and biodegradable, or meaning your body will break it down. But the, the good part of it is as your body breaks that material down, you lay down your own collagen to replace it. So there's this exchange almost. It converts it to water and CO2, but then you create collagen to replace it. So this, this sling, it looks like a sling, you know, I, I don't have one with me. I would show you, I have it on my Instagram, but yeah, it is placed underneath the breast or it can be placed on the side of the breast. I did that yesterday on a patient and it can help add support. So it's FDA approved for soft tissue support. Um, wow. and it, you know, and there's different brands and whatever, but I have seen amazing things with it. And I started using it initially because I had a patient come in. She'd had three or four surgeries with a few other surgeons. Her breast kept 
bottoming out, like dropping. And she was super unhappy with that. And I said, well, look, I, I know of this material that I had seen in training a couple of years prior. I'm like, let's try it. You know, I'm like, I don't know. Cause even my own experience, I didn't have experience. And so we did it and it worked amazing. And I, again, going back to night 2019, when I started doing it, that's where I think I started getting traction on the internet because people are like, Oh my gosh, this material is amazing. And this patient just went on and, you know, she's kind of like a local known person. So when she went and talked about it, all these women that are really active came to me and said, Hey, I have the same problem. And so I started getting all these women with pocket problems and the, you know, it's a really good material to help control the pocket. Um, and I like it because it's not permanent. It's not like a mesh that we put in like the bladder or the, you know, hernias. Like this is a non-permanent material, but the results can can be long-term. So I, I now after using it for several years, like almost five years now, um, you know, I use it in a lot more areas and I'm doing some studies and stuff with it. I, I've just I've just seen really good things with it. Is it perfect? No, like I'm not a perfect surgeon. There's no perfect material and no one's body heals perfectly. But it has definitely, I think, revolutionized this whole area of breast surgery. Where women before had issues, I think it's really changed it. That's fascinating. I know. I'm so grateful for this. That's probably something I'm going to have to do. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Do you want to ask the next question or do you want me to? Oh, go ahead. Okay. Somebody asked, well, oh, let's ask the other breast question since we're on the topic. Yeah. Um, you recommend, I'm assuming that I might say it wrong, SUMA implant, the suit, what is it? Oh, SOMI? SOMI. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. Oh, oh yeah. Tell, I mean. No, you're good. Is that the actual implant or is that a procedure that you do? Sorry that I am. Yeah. So the SOMI came from, it's it's a procedure that I do, but really what it is, it's a combination of procedures. So kind of like the word mommy takeover, mm -hmm. how that's a combination of surgeries. It's easier to say mommy takeover than I'm getting a tummy tuck, breast lift, breast dog, lipo, you know, just call mommy takeover. Um, SOMI is the same way because I, you know, what I do, it's, it's called composite breast augmentation. And that just sounds really nerdy. So I'm like, I don't want to tell everybody to do composite breast aug. What does that mean? Composite means there's several components to the surgery, right? So a regular breast augmentation, you're using one material using a breast implant, whether that's silicone or saline. Um, it becomes composite when you add like fat grafting. So I do a lot of fat grafting. We'll take fat from other areas of the body and create cleavage lines or add volume to get add more definition. So that's another component. And then the internal bra is the third component where we're adding another material, bioabsorbable, you know, internal bra. So there's kind of three different materials. That's kind of considered composite breast augmentation. I'm like, that is the worst term. So I talked to my wife. I was like, what should I call it? Like, I hate calling it that on Instagram and I was in the middle of making our own post-surgical bra. We call it the SOMI bra. So we ended up calling it the SOMI breast augmentation. It has two meanings. One, SOMI is like so me, like literally wow. like it's a customized surgery for your breasts, right? Like it's not like I'm doing the cookie cutter thing. Like you might need fat grafting. You might need the internal bra. You might need both. So it's really kind of coming up with a customized breast augmentation. And sometimes you need to lift with that. Sometimes we're liposuctioning around the bra and all that. So the, those are all components of so, the SOMI augmentation. Um, and then the bra itself is the SOMI augmentation because it's, uh, again, SOMI. And and people are willing to show their results on social media. So SOMI also stands for social media. So it kind of has like two meanings. Um, but my wife came up with that. I did not. I'm not that smart. You missed your uh, – if you had another industry that you could go into. I mean, my husband's in advertising and marketing, and I was like, oh, this is impressive. <laughs> I actually really – really love that you customized the breast implantation surgery because I, you're right. There's probably so many components that's different for each patient. Yeah. Even now, I mean, one thing I've been doing in the last year and a half is I've actually even changed. I've evolved how I do breast surgery in general. You know, most women are going, or most surgeons go underneath the muscle. We call it submuscular. Mm -hmm. um, I've actually shifted mostly to subfascial. So for a lot of my active fit patients, I'm no longer cutting muscle. You know, I had a patient yesterday for a consult. She came in and she's like, I don't get, and she's very active. She said, I don't get why, you know, we compromise someone's function to have an aesthetic look. And I said, that's exactly what I thought. And, and I've looked back and, you know, I, so with these new materials, like a very gummy implant that holds its shape with the internal bra material and with fat grafting, you know, I really feel like the issues in the past that we had with a subfascial augmentation. So subfascial means we go right above the pec muscle, right underneath the muscle lining, the, the fascia. So there's just kind of like no man's land 
or no woman's land that we can put an implant in. And that doesn't cut any muscle. You know, I have a lot of women come in that have what's called animation, where if they like even move their arms or pecs, their implants are like all over the place, you know, and it's uncomfortable for women. Or if they're trying to do bench presses or pull-ups, like their implants are in their armpits. And then over time, their implants just displace. And so I've really shifted towards doing this, you know, more preservative breast augmentation. It feels a lot more natural to women. And I'm even converting women from under the muscle, repairing their muscle completely, and then putting it above. And I did, I did that yesterday on a patient. She looks amazing today. I just saw her. That's why I was a little bit late. Um, girl. And she's super happy. And these patients are, and I post about a lot. I just see the function that it can restore in patients. Even my own wife had that. And, you know, we share this. That's why I can share it with you guys, but for you ladies. But um, yeah, she, when she get cold, her implants would be like be over here. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm your plastic surgeon and I can't even, you know, I feel like you're botched. So I actually went and converted her a few months ago and she's so happy. And she's like, wow, like it just feels natural. She's like, when I shiver now, cause it's cold in Utah, it doesn't do that. Like she just, it just feels great, you know? And so I even think with breast surgery itself, like I'm always trying to do, I think what is better for my patients, you know, and it, it takes that feedback and doing it consistently to figure that out, I think. Yeah, it makes you more confident when you they stay in place. I my question was going to be, have you watched Botched? <laughs> yeah, I get clips. Um, I tried watching it. It's a little frustrating. Well, you know that show is very entertaining for one, and I think it's it's fun to watch. But those are kind of like the the unicorn cases that just don't we don't see all those day to day. You know, I don't have a lot of guys coming in want to look like a Ken doll, you know, and, or women that want just these excessive implants. That's just not normal. Um, so it's fun to watch, but it's just not the reality of plastic surgery. So I think it's really sensationalized plastic surgery. And one of the most common DMS I get is the question, am I botched? And they'll send me a photo unsolicited of their (laughs) breast from some other surgeon or, you know, I'm like, I have my own botched running in my DMS, but, um, (laughs) Yeah, like, I think we've just taken that term and, you know, they've kind of run with it, which is great. I think it's awesome. Um, I don't enjoy watching it, though, because I just feel like it's not like my real job, you know, like, that's not, that's yeah. not what we really do. I mean, I definitely do a lot of restorative or reconstructive stuff with breasts, you know, these these revision cases, because I get patients from all over the country. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, this is what I want to know, because I feel like and I, I'm removed from the Utah culture, I have been for a while, but I have family living there, so I still hear this. But there's like this trend that women are going to like Mexico to get certain surgeries. And I'm like, why would anyone go to Mexico of all places? I don't care how cheap it is. Like it's your it's your body. So that was a little disturbing when I don't know if that's true or not, I'm, but yeah, I'm a little biased because you know, I, so I train in Southern California. And so we had a lot of patients that were from California would go, you know, just across the border in Mexico, have surgery in Tijuana or something, and then come <laughs> back to the emergency room. You know, I'm at the County yeah. hospital and they're just like a disaster. And so for me, I had this like tainted image. I'm like, man, like that's really dangerous, you know? And so people do to save money or maybe they have family or whatever down there. Um, you know, I would say there are definitely, there are some really good surgeons in Mexico. I'm not going to discredit them. The, but the only thing is that I think keep in mind is the training um, required in Mexico to become a plastic surgeon is different. Board certification is different. So the levels of safety and stuff are very different in terms of, you know, how rigorous it is. Um, and yeah, cost might be different because cost of living there is, is less. Um, I think you still have a good experience. And, you know, probably most of the time women that go down there have a great experience and come home. But I will tell you, if things go bad, they go really bad and they go bad fast. And so even when I moved back to Utah and I was taking call at Intermountain, some of the hospitals here, I would get called in to patients who had come in, even from Florida and New Mexico. And I was just like, oh, it's so sad, you know, and some patients almost dying. And it's just it's not worth it in my mind. You know, I say find a board. There are plenty of good surgeons in the United States that don't have two-year wait lists that are going to give you excellent results. Um, and so I would re- definitely recommend you stay in the U.S. Oh, yeah. The the Mexico, like, my dad had LASIK. And when I was getting LASIK done, he's like, Haley, you're you're paying like five times the amount. It's, I got buy what I get what I free. And I'm like, precisely why I'm not going to that place. Yeah. <laughs> it's my eyeballs. 
Well, if you heard that story, this might be, I, I might, I'm not trying to share like, you know, hearsay or myths, but I don't know if you saw that story in the news recently, even people going to Turkey, that's a huge popular thing. There was a group of women that went and had their, their tummy tuck mommy makeovers on in Turkey and they all like didn't feel well after uh, that. One of them went to the ER when they got back to the United States, got a CT scan. She was missing a kidney. Um, turns out all the patient, all their friends, there was like three or four of them. They all were missing kidneys. Um, so, you know, <laughs> you got to be This right is careful. what I'm saying. <laughs> Do your research and you don't chintz. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, okay. So I want, let's start moving down the body really quick for the questions, because this is, um, someone asked when you get a tummy tuck and you have an Audi belly button, can you do a belly button revision with it? Yeah. So, um, I look at, so I'm, I'm writing another research paper right now about, um, how to treat a belly button, you know, from a tummy tuck and how to correct it. So I am working. So I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, so first I want a patient comes with an Audi belly button. A lot of times they might have a hernia that they didn't know about, meaning, you know, it contents from inside their abdomen, like, you know, fat or, or bowel are sticking through. And that's common after you have pregnancy, your abdomen gets stretched out. It allows for little openings to happen. Think of like Swiss cheese and then your stuff on the inside can push out. So that's what a hernia is. And it's very common at the belly button because that's a weak point in your abdomen. Um, and that, those can typically be corrected, yeah. So to turn it from an Audi to an any. Um, some women have just really flat and stretched out belly buttons because their skin is thin. They have a really wide diastasis. And so sometimes we have to do what's called a like reconstruct the belly button or even make a new one. So I had a patient last week. She had had, you know, multiple pregnancies. She had a hernia that had been fixed by another surgeon, a, you know, a general surgeon, and her belly button was just jacked. And so we did a tummy tuck, but I said, look, we can't keep your belly button. So we actually cut it out. She has no belly button right now, but we're planning on in the next two months to take her back and create a brand new belly button for her because her old one would just, it was not good. You were so there's, Yeah, so we can do that too. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of things you can be done with the belly button. The hardest thing though is when someone's had a tummy tuck and some other surgeon has already committed to whatever belly button they made, that becomes very hard to reconstruct because- it's already been done. And so to uh -huh. undo a belly button like that is, is not impossible, but it can be very challenging. Um, I do those, but um, yeah, I always try to warn patients that after they've committed to it, it's really hard to get a really natural looking belly button. Well, I have a quick question because I was going to have, I have a umbilical hernia. And so I was mm -hmm. going to fix that while I was under the doctor's like, oh yeah, we're just taking care of that. Mm -hmm. But I decided not to because well, I didn't have the recovery time. I have to go to Australia and do a bunch of filming. And I was like, isn't that a longer recovery? I mean, he's like, that's going to be the hardest recovery because you, ha you have to be so careful with, with the core and lifting and like all of that. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that longer than just like an implant exchange or something? Yeah. I mean, usually like uh, anytime we do anything with the abdomen, whether it's repairing the muscles or repairing a hernia, whether you have mesh or not, you know, you usually want to give it about six weeks, sometimes even up to 12 weeks to get back to full activity, especially if you're active like you are, because yeah, you want to make sure that's healed enough and scarred in that you don't like rupture that repair and yeah. get a hernia again. So it is definitely a longer recovery in terms of probably overall pain and stuff. It's probably not more painful, but it's just that you have to be like they said, a lot more careful, you know, in the breasts, you know, I still say, you know, six weeks, no heavy lifting again, cause you can cause bleeding and pocket problems. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's a probably equivalent overall like recovery time, but you should be probably more careful with your tummy for sure. Well, you want your patients to protect what procedure they're getting. So that makes sense. It would be hard, especially yeah. for Haley, but that does make sense. If you're going to go through the effort to get it done, probably want to protect yeah. what it is you're doing. For sure. Um, okay. I want to talk about labio, labiaplasty. Someone, awesome. one of the... Um, it wasn't a question, but she commented and said that she did it. I want to say she said a year or two ago, and she said he did my labioplasty and it has in all caps changed my life. And mm -hmm. I feel like as a woman in her forties, all the time when I'm at dinner with my friends or lunch or whatever, we all of a sudden start talking about the vagina and how they change and how it also ages or how childbirth has changed it or we should get a little nip tuck or the lips also age and need, I don't, 
I mean, I want to know, like, do you put filler in those? Do you put fat grafting? Tell us everything about the labioplasty. Yeah, love it. <laughs> yeah. So there's kind of three main components I would say that we address with um, the genitalia down there with for females. So, again, they all get affected by pregnancy, right? So you, you talked about the, the outer or the inner lips, the labia minora, we call it. Um, you know, those are the non-hair bearing labia. Those are the ones that are touching typically. And those can get really elongated and stretched out. I mean, that's like a mucosal, like almost like, you know, mucosal tissue. Like you think of like the lining of your mouth, it's mucosal like that. And so that tissue can get stretched out with swelling and then it just doesn't shrink down. And so like women trying to exercise, it's chafing. You, intercourse, women have to like spread the, the labia just to have intercourse or it's uncomfortable. So functionally, it's a problem. And aesthetically, women are like, why? This hangs down, you know? And some women are like, well, I get, I get in my my Lulus and you can see that, you know? And so that can be a problem, but that can be definitely addressed. So labiaplasty, that is an awesome procedure for women. And the, the rates of satisfaction in labia menoraplasty are over 90%. It's one of the highest satisfaction rates in plastic surgery because wow. the recovery is very straightforward. You could do it awake. You can get numbed and do it awake. You know, the recovery is minimal. Um, the pain is, is very minimal for most How patients. How long is the um, recovery if you're doing like the full? Yeah. So if you did the labia plasty, let's say you do, okay. So labia majora, that's the hair bearings labia, you know, I'll, I'll fat graft that to add volume, um, or we'll tighten it with the Renuvion. Um, and then the, there is a vaginal plasty where we actually, you can tighten the vaginal canal. So there's those three main components, but for all of those, typically I just recommend six weeks, no intercourse. And that's pretty common across the board. You just don't want to, again, be doing anything where you're creating friction and tearing things apart. So that's where, um, you just have to have six weeks off, but, but pain wise, like I said, it's very minimal. Women are back doing things like the next day. I mean, obviously you want to be careful with like heavy lifting and exercise, but, um, yeah, women feel pretty well after that procedure pretty quickly. I've had two wow. friends that haven't had, obviously I'm not saying their names, but so it's keeping them private, but I've had two friends that haven't had children and they have mm -hmm. gone in and had some corrections done. And they said it was life-changing for them too. They feel more confident and sex is better. And so I think even for people who are interested whether you've had yeah. kids or not, I think it sounds like a really productive and successful procedure. Yeah, I love that you bring that up because you're right. It's very common. And even, you know, everyone has asymmetry in the body, just baseline or what you're born with. You know, no two breasts are the same. Half our face is not the same. And then even labia can be different lengths. And so women who haven't even had kids, like you said, they may have developed the labia differently. And it's it can be, you know, a confidence boost for them once they have that symmetry. And, and in the day, like, look, like, as long as you're a reasonable person, and you want something reasonable, like, I think it's very appropriate, like, it's not for us to judge each other. If, you know, if, if I'm troubled by my crooked teeth, and I get braces, like no one judges me for that. But yeah. if someone's like, Oh, I had my labia done, because it was uneven, like, you know, same thing, we shouldn't be judging each other for that. It's not our place. Um, and so that's why people tend to keep it private. But at the same time, people don't even know it's a possibility, because people are so you know, hush, hush about it. But in reality, they don't know the benefits that can come from it. And that's why, you know, for me as a surgeon and other, I think other surgeons on Instagram, you're really just trying to get that information out there for people. And then you can do what you want with it, you know, whether it applies to you or not, but at least knowing what's available out there, I think it's the most important thing. Yeah. And normalizing it. That's one thing I love that with your TikTok and Instagram and people sharing more of plastic surgery, normalizing it and people shouldn't be shamed for it. I agree. What do you think is the, like that has the worst success rate or the hardest procedure to do? And do you still get nervous to do those? Or do you feel like super confident with everything now? I mean, so I had mentioned earlier, you know, um, I really focus on breast and body because I do a lot of it. And so, you know, when you do something more often, you feel more comfortable with it for sure. Um, but if you look across the country, a lot of the studies and data shows that, you know, rhinoplasties has one of the highest complication rates. 50% of the time, people are wanting a revision. So one out of two people, one of you two, if you had a rhinoplasty, you'd be wanting it redone. And then after you've had one rhinoplasty and you've had two, you're probably going to have three and four. So it becomes this thing. Now, breasts can be similar. So one of the highest, you know, complication rates in breasts is com combination of implants and a lift because the balance, again, so now this is, this is where to me, um, 
consistency is key, especially with the internal bra. To me, the internal bra helps maintain the location of the breast implant. Because you can imagine if I do a lift on you and I put an implant, now your implant slides down. Well, now your nipple is not in, in proportion to your breast implant. It looks weird. Now you need a revision. Come back, tighten your pocket, slides down again, you know, or now the skin stretches. So you're playing this constant game. But in my mind, the internal bra, when that's been added to, and again, this is data that I'm going to be publishing uh, with all my internal bra studies to demonstrate and show the difference between complication rates of when you're able to use um, the internal bra with a lift and aug versus without. And so, you know, if you, again, it's about 40, I think 40 plus percent complication rate or re-operation re rate for women who have a lift and implant simultaneously. That's across the U.S. So those are the two highest complication rates in the country. Uh, I lived in New Jersey for three years. My husband was working in the city and at an advertising agency. And there were so many young high school girls there that had rhinoplasty. I mean, I was blown away because I didn't know that was a thing. I mean, I feel like Utah, Colorado, kind of like you, you see young girls getting breast implants, mm -hmm. but I mean, not the nose so much, but it was, it was a big thing out there. So, yeah, because the, the nose, as soon as you touch it. And so there's a huge movement for what they call preservation rhinoplasty, where you try to preserve all the ligaments and structures in the nose so that you maybe have a less chance of this stuff happening. But yeah, these open rhinoplasties and things, you, it may look good for a year and then it keeps changing. The cartilage resorbs, it warps, it's, it turns. Now the nose is slightly crooked. People look in the mirror like, oh my gosh, why is my nose? You know, So there's all these subtle things and then it's on your face. You're looking in the mirror, you're on FaceTime and you're like, oh, you're seeing it all the time. You know, it, you breast, you don't stand naked in the mirror all the time You know, out in public. Your nose is in public. So you can see where that's where people want to fix it or tweak it and that's where you get a lot of these revisions and um, recurrences. I forgot about this. Some women's fear of breast um, implants or lifts or what I think mainly with lifts is that they'll lose their nipple if they take the nipple all the way off. Is that, what is your? Yeah. So first off with a lift, we never remove the nipple from the body. Um, the only time the nipple is ever taken off the body and, and reattached as a, as a nipple graft, we call it, is in women who have excessively large breasts and getting a breast reduction. And even in those situations, we typically don't take the nipple off. So the when people see a lift, we're not taking, and I tell my patients, like, look, it is always attached to your body. We rearrange the skin, kind of like origami, to get your nipple in a better position, but it's mm -hmm. never detached from the blood flow or the nerves. Now you can have nerve changes um, if a lot of tissue is removed or if you ever plan to breastfeed in the future, it's possible you won't make as much milk because we take out some of the breast ducts and glands you know, to rearrange it. But for the most part, women still have great sensation. Most women um, are able to breastfeed if they want to. But those are all things you need to know as part of, you know, making decisions for surgery. But yeah, we never take, and, you know, heaven forbid, knock on wood, I, out of doing thousands of surgeries in the last five years, I've had zero nipples die on me. So, but again, I think it really comes down to safety and making sure you're doing the right surgery. And, you know, if you have to stage it in two surgeries, I do that. And so, you know. Those are all important things. This is why Sorry, you are the best. Yeah. No, I love that. This is why you are the best. I'm grateful that that's your philosophy. Last question. Mm -hmm. You said neck lift. I want to know mm -hmm. if someone doesn't want to commit to a full facelift or a facelift, whatever, what can you mm -hmm. do for the neck? Does a neck lift actually work? Oh, yeah. So there's there's both non-invasive or non-surgical neck lifts that you can that can be done that I'll I can tell you about and then there's obviously surgical neck lifts where we actually physically remove excess skin and then retighten everything and resuspend it internally and you know remove some of the internal fat sometimes the glands there's a lot of things that can be done surgically but non-surgically there's actually a lot of really cool devices that you know they're out there and we have a lot of these here but that are things yeah, though they work. Yeah. So it's all about, you know, when a patient comes in and has a question about it, assessing the patient and then giving them the options that make sense for them, you know, because some patients, guess what, you got too much loose skin, you know, there's no amount of like skin tightening devices or lipo that's going to fix that, right? It's just like a tummy tuck. Like, if you have so much loose skin and a muscle separation, you know, lipo is not going to fix that, you're just going to have more yeah. loose skin and still a muscle gap. So same thing in the neck. So it's really assessing the patient. But, you know, if you have a little bit of stubborn excess fat here, 
a little bit of loose skin, it's very possible. I do this a lot. We do submental, we call it submental or chin lipo. And then we add skin tightening with Renuvion. And then you can even add what's called radio frequency microneedling. So like Morpheus or Silfirm. There's all these devices. And then there's, you know, people do these threads and things. There's so many things out there um, uh-huh. that are available. And so really it's just making sure like the level of like invasiveness that we do matches the result you want. And so again, it's like it's setting patient expectations up front and what they can we can achieve with each of the different procedures. Yeah. So where can people find you even to get on the, the wait list of the wait list? Yeah. You just follow me. Um, yeah. I'm always happy to see you too, but yeah, it's Instagram at Dr. Chitty. So C H I D D Y Dr. Chitty one word. And then same thing that's on TikTok, Dr. Chitty. Um, and then, so if you want to see some dances or stuff and then I, my YouTube is Dr. Chitty. And then I do have a private Instagram page. So a lot of this content unfortunately gets censored, by Instagram. And so I get shadow banned and a lot of plastic surgeons. So I, I'm actually, aside from surgery, I do a lot of stuff on our society side for social media in terms of like education, other plastic surgeons and meetings and things. We're trying to, you know, figure navigate this stuff as surgeons, but I have a page that's called plastics by Chitty. And it's a private page, so I can accept you there. But yeah, I have a lot more like surgical content there. Well, I'll put, I'll put all my befores and afters on the wall, but I will show surgeries, you know, and kind of what we're doing. I don't look, I don't do live surgery recordings. I think that's unsafe, but I will record segments of surgery. My, my staff does that and then I'll post it later and discuss it. And you can see that on that page, but those are my main pages. That's great. And you do have two new partners so people yeah. can get into your practice with yes. people that you trust and you've hired to partner with. Yep. Dr. Garlic is amazing. He's a board certified plastic surgeon. Dr. Pfeiffer just finished his fellowship training in Houston. Um, he's wonderful. He does actually a lot of face stuff. He's board eligible. So he's working on his um, board stuff right now. It takes time, um, but they're great. I handpicked them. I think they're wonderful people and then amazing surgeons, very talented. We have a lot of the same philosophies when it comes to breast support, internal bra or, you know, mommy makeover, you know, kind of reshaping and contouring and proportions. We're all similar. Um, so they're great. So if you want to see them, please, they would love to see you. And we'd love to have you in our clinic. You know, it's like I said, it's, we're a family. We try to keep it kind of like Olive Garden when you're there, your family and, you know, <laughs> you feel like you're part of it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll chat with you again. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and sharing the body pod with your friends. Until next time.